while I was gone, Todd so faithfully taught us last week and kicked us off on a new series, and that series is entitled simply The Mission. And the mission, in some ways, might be the most important series that we ever do. I said this years ago, the most important series that we have done in my time here and will ever do was a series on the gospel itself, getting that correct, getting that right, understanding what the Bible has to say about the most important message that's ever been. But up there, not quite on the same level, but up there of importance is this message here. It's going to be eight weeks. Last week was week one. This is week two, and we'll continue on. What do we do with this gospel message? What is it that God desires for us as well as from us? And so each week, I'm begging that you would come prepared, um, listening, thinking, praying, um, and, and challenging. So as you come, uh, think like a Berean, as is pointed out in the, the book of Acts. Um, think critically about what it is that I'm saying. Now, I may have uh, less knowledge than some of you, may have more knowledge than some of you in regards to what the Bible has to say, but we all have the same Holy Spirit. And so come listening to him each and every week, and then ask the Lord a question, what do you want me to do with this, Lord? And if that means come and talk to me and question me, then I would welcome that. I would love that. Please, uh, um, that would be um, uh, an honor um, on my end. Now, I'm hoping as well that everyone has come here uh, today in a great mood and with the winning of three Florida teams uh, yesterday, the three major ones, I'm assuming that everyone is coming. We just had a chomp right here on the second road, so you know, uh, hoping everyone is coming um, uh, in a good mood. And I want to take advantage of that. And I want to turn your attention just ever so briefly, would you think about how it is that you can grow. And we have put together a plan for you called My Plan to Grow. It's out here, available out here, either of these places. It's not us telling you what to do. It's just a guide for you to develop your own plan, ways in which you can make some commitments, pray about it, how would the Lord guide you, and how would he lead you in the process. And the other one that I would beg you to take advantage of is these prayer cards. We have put these together here recently, prayer requests, And we would love for you to just fill these out. You'll find them all spaced out as well. You can place them in the offering. You can drop it off at the office. How can we as a staff and leaders um, uh, uh, intercede on your behalf? We offer an opportunity for you to come up every week. We're still going to do that. But we also would love the opportunity. Can I beg you, take advantage of the opportunities to grow. If you put yourself in the pathway of God, doing the normal, regular, routine things. I think you're going to find that God is going to use those normal, regular, routine things to conform you more and more and more into the image of His Son. Prayer doesn't change us. The Spirit changes us. Prayer is oftentimes just the way that we get to God. Reading the Word doesn't change us. The Spirit changes us. He uses the Word in order to do that, etc., etc. So um, uh, take advantage of that. Now, finally, to our text this morning. Todd kicked us off last week, and he kicked us off saying that the fame of God is one of the driving forces. Think of it as the right leg. It is the right leg that holds us up. The grand mission of God starts with our right leg moving forward, and it is about the fame of God. It's about God's name, God's reputation, and ultimately, uh, fame is best represented in satisfaction of those that are around them. Would it not be true, for example, that 
The greatest thing that I could say about my spouse, the thing that would bring her the greatest honor and glory, is say, you know what? I just can't tell you how deeply satisfied I am. The joy that she brings. I could talk about all the things that she does. I could talk about her gifts and talents. All that would be honoring. But isn't the most honoring thing to say, I just can't tell you, for whatever reason, I am just so at peace and content every time I'm around her. So it is with God. The greatest way that God receives honor and glory, his name is made greatest, is when his children are the most deeply satisfied in him. When his children are at rest, knowing that he loves them unconditionally, they say, I I don't have a need to go to other places because God is so deeply satisfying. Now, we will spend the rest of our lives believing that this might be more satisfying in this moment, or this might be more satisfying in this moment, or this might be more satisfying in this moment, but we keep coming back. We, we honor God the most. We bring in the most amount of glory when we are most deeply satisfied in who he is. And so the fame of God is what we strive for, that God would receive the proper recognition. He would be seen as he is around the globe. That drives us. But there's a second leg to this. The two driving passions, if you will, when it comes to the mission of God. It is the fame of God, and then it is the left leg, the freedom of man. Can I ask you a quick question? How do you most often internally, most often, how do you internally handle conflict? When someone comes in opposition against you, what is it that comes naturally to you? So, for example, when someone may attack you at work, someone may attack you at at school, meaning not physically per se, but with their words, their thoughts, things that they are trying to uh, to get others to believe about you. How do you handle opposition? Most of us would like that opposition to be handled with restriction. We would like for there to be a muzzle that's put on it. We would like for that to happen internally in this individual, that they would choose not to say these things. But isn't there also something secretly inside of us that would not mind, particularly if someone else imposed this upon them? Put a little restriction on that mouth. We oftentimes want to handle opposition through greater restriction. We want to legislate it, make a law about it, cause folks to slow down, whatever it may be. Opposition, sin, etc., we want there to be restriction, folks to be restrained in the process. Do you know what God's solution to this is? Freedom. God wants to increase freedom because he's looking at others right now who actually are acting out in this way because they are captives. The reason that someone might take this posture towards you is because there's this sin condition. And they're slave to that sin condition and can't choose something else. So God, rather than trying to put in more restriction, more legislation, more law, et cetera, seeks out more freedom for them. How does it work? From a spiritual standpoint. Now, hopefully this is going to make sense here in a few moments. But... If you have your Bibles open to Luke chapter 4, I'm going to ask you to stand if you're physically able as we read a handful of verses beginning in verse 16. Speaking about Jesus, says, And he came to Nazareth, 
uh, Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the, Lord's, uh, the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. You may be seated. Jesus is giving what is unmistakably the mission of God that had been given to him and has been given to all of us as well. Now, we need to make a distinction. There's a portion of something that Jesus did that we can't do. So in other words, Jesus' ministry, while in, certainly involved preaching and teaching, certainly, Jesus actually accomplished something that we cannot accomplish in and of ourselves. So Jesus came to actually live the perfect life. Now, we are called to live lives of uprightness, of righteousness, etc. The standard absolutely is perfection, but we simply can't do it. He had to come here to do it for us. Jesus is the one who ultimately sets people free. We can't do that. We can do it in a small way. We can do it in a political way. We can introduce, but we can't actually do the freeing of others. So Jesus, in one sense, stands in the solitude of himself in a mission that only he can accomplish. But in another sense, we are called to be little Christs to a watching world. And Jesus lays it out for us very well here in Luke uh, chapter 4. And I summarize it this way. When we're talking about the mission of God, we're talking about one mind, two passions, and three questions. One mind is the mind of Christ that mind of Jesus was single-minded in nature. He was relentless in his pursuit of this particular mission. The two passions drove that mind. The two passions were the fame of God and the freedom of man. And then there's three questions. Three questions that we ought to ask ourselves. I'll give them to you now. I'll come back to them at the end. But three questions we ought to ask ourselves each and every day. Number one, where do I need to be set free so that I can passionately pursue God's fame and man's freedom. Number two, how can God use me where I am right now to spread his fame? And number three, how can God use me where I am right now to set people free? Jesus, I think, shows us in this particular passage ways that we can ask these questions, listen to God for it, and then pursue unique ways. He's going to call you to that he may not call me to. So very quickly in the, in the passage, Luke chapter 4, it says that he, meaning Jesus, came to Nazareth, Nazareth where he had been brought up. He goes back to his hometown. Uh, I am looking forward uh, later on uh, to going to my 20th high school reunion. 
bunch of us graduated in the late 80s, and it's always a wonderful time to return to some friends. Now, it's a town that I grew up in. It wasn't the town I was born in. I was born in a small little town in Mississippi, but Montgomery, Alabama is where I grew up. Got there in the fall, going right into the third grade, two days before my eighth birthday. And growing up in Montgomery was very similar to growing up in Tallahassee. Similar-sized towns, both of them capital cities, Montgomery doesn't quite have the college town flavor that Tallahassee does, but Montgomery was by and large a smaller town, even though it had a larger number of people, it had a smaller town feel. You could go pretty much anywhere in the town and be assured that at some point you were going to know somebody who knew somebody. It didn't take long to get from the, the west side of town to the east side of town, nor from the north side of town to the south side of town. And while it was irritating to drive in five o'clock traffic, I realized how silly that was when in the mid-90s I moved to Atlanta. (laughs) Growing up in Montgomery was great. I still to this day love going back to my hometown. But every time I go back to Montgomery, I think, whew, glad I'm not here. Great town to grow up in. Love to this day the people. Enjoy every moment when I go back. I'm glad I don't live there again. Jesus is going back to his hometown. And keep in mind, when Jesus is going back to his hometown, he's not going back to Atlanta, Atlantioch, if that's even a city. (laughs) Jesus is going back to a town that is a little bit more out of the way. And there were folks there that had the thick, redneck, hick accents. Jesus is a big deal. Everywhere Jesus goes, he's about to be followed. Mass crowds are going to come around him. And while he doesn't have the formal education that some of the other religious leaders do, Jesus is already drawing crowds of people. When he goes back to his hometown, he's in many ways kicking off his ministry. And it says that he comes to Nazareth. And then listen to this. And as was his custom. Jesus had a normal, regular, routine habit of going to church. Now, I know some of you right then went, oh, I know where he's going with this. And you watch it online, I know what you're thinking right now. I'm not saying it. As was his custom, Jesus just made a habit of going to church. Every week, he went. Now, we don't know where Jesus' earthly father is. We don't know what happened to Joseph. He could have died in the process. He could, we, we just don't know where he is. But Joseph evidently set the tone in their family as well. We are going to go. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Folks, do not underestimate the simple habit of, on a consistent basis, gathering with God's people. If Jesus made it his custom, can I encourage you to make it yours as well? I have no idea what the long-term benefits will be. I just know that there will be blessing after benefit after benefit that will come to you. Now, You can 
criticize this, you can applaud it, whatever you want to do. But in the McNeely house, we have one rule as it pertains to our spirituality. I only mandate one thing for my children. I don't ask that they have quiet times with me. I don't ask they memorize scripture with me. I don't put them in any group. I don't force them to go to anything with the exception of Sunday morning. And I tell them, it doesn't really matter where you are the night before, how late you were out, I want you here on Sunday mornings. And I want you awake. <laughs> As was his custom. Just make it a habit of regularly gathering with God's people and then watch the Spirit move in and amongst you as the years go on. He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and then it says that he stood up uh, to read. This is a posture that would have been taken by any adult male, assuming that there were 10 males or more in this particular service. And anyone could have gotten up and they could have read, and then they could have expounded a little bit about what would have been read. But Luke doesn't give us all of the details, but he lets us know enough that there is some regular readings that would have taken place. And then there comes time for another reading, and Jesus then stands up, and he makes his way up to where the reading would have taken place. And a scroll was handed to him, probably because he asked for that particular scroll. And he opens it up to a space that he probably had already planned on before. It probably wasn't just the normal uh, rhythm of reading that had taken place on that day. It's probably Jesus had planned to go to this particular passage. He opens it up, and then it says that he reads. He then rolls that back up and hands it over, and every eye in the room now begins to focus on him. He reads a passage that comes out of Isaiah. In all likelihood, Luke is summarizing for us, and so Jesus read from two passages in Isaiah but Isaiah 62 is what is quoted from here directly. And when Jesus reads this section of the scripture, the people would have immediately drawn their attention and said, ah, finally, some prophecy about when times are going to get better for us. Let's see what this Galilean has to say. And so Jesus sits down. And Jesus then begins to teach and expounds on this. Now, Scripture doesn't tell us what all the words that he used to expound, but we have every reason to believe that he expounded this passage because of what comes in verse 22. It says that they were speaking graciously of him, and they were amazed at his teaching. So Luke is probably summarizing for us here. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. Now this anointing goes back to Luke chapter 3. And this is the commissioning of Jesus in his ministry. You remember he's baptized and the spirit of the Lord comes down like a dove upon him. And God says, this is my son. And the, the ministry gets kicked off and Jesus is talking about how the Holy Spirit is coming upon him. Every time the Holy Spirit comes upon someone in the Old Testament, great things happened. Things that were supernatural in nature. The Holy Spirit came upon one person and he ran a considerable distance in a fairly short period of time. The Holy Spirit comes upon another person and he heals people. The Spirit comes upon another person, waters part. The Spirit comes upon another person that begins speaking. Whenever the Holy Spirit shows up, great things happen. And Jesus says, 
the Holy Spirit is parked on me. It's just sort of laying residence. He's not coming and then moving on to somewhere else. The Holy Spirit is with me. He has anointed me. I am the man, is what Jesus is saying right now. Anointed, but for what? To preach the good news, he says. To proclaim the good news to the poor. Now, I don't want to go on a long explanation of this, but when he uses the term poor, he is indeed referring to the financially poor. But that's not the primary meaning that Luke has right here. Although the financially poor are included in this, that word should be used in a broader context. Jesus talks about the poor in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor. What's he referred to? The poor in spirit. Being financially poor just provided an easier opportunity in order to look upwards towards Jesus. It's a little more difficult for the financially wealthy, wealthy to look upwards towards Jesus. But the financial wealthy are included in this term as well. All who are poor, all who are needy, all who don't have everything that they need, all who are destitute in some form or fashion, Jesus is including. I've come to preach the good news to the poor. Are you poor? If you view yourself as poor, Jesus says you're blessed. If you view yourself as wealthy and rich, Jesus says it's going to be hard getting to you. In fact, it's going to be easier for, an eye, for a camel to make its way through an eye of a needle than it is for you to come to salvation. Blessed are the I've come to preach good news to the poor. When he uses this term preach, it's the same word that is used for heralding. It is the word expressly used for the verbal proclamation of. Yes, good deeds are important, but that old saying, which is really silly in nature, preach the good news. I can't even remember it. I botched it so bad. What is it? Do good deeds. People see you. I'm going to find out what that quote is in between the services. Check out the second services. What is that quote? Seriously, somebody. If, if necessary, use words. What is that thing? Say it. Thank you. Preach the good news, and if necessary, use words. That is a horrific statement. If necessary, of course it's necessary. The scripture over and over again says verbal proclamation of. Now, is it a good idea to live a really good life that's really inviting to others, that really causes them to question? Of course. The scripture always says herald, proclaim, preach, use words. How would you like to have a relationship with your child and never use a word? But by golly, we're going to do some good things for one another. I'm going to impress you with all the wonderful things I did. Preach is what he says um, in here. Simply to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. And notice what he does not say. I am going to free every captive that there is. He says, I am going to proclaim freedom to the captives. Those who are currently, the term that he has used here uh, for prisoners is, is uh, a prisoner of war. That's the literal meaning of the term. To proclaim liberty to those who have been taken captive in war. Now, what is Jesus referring to? 
While it certainly is true that those who have been captured in war would be included in this statement, it's not the central meaning of what Jesus is driving at. Jesus is driving in the fact that we live in a war today, and we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities, etc. And so there have been those that have been taken captive in this war, held under the clutches of the evil one, under the system of the world, etc. And I have come to proclaim freedom to those who have been held captive. Now, maybe you're not as sinister as I am. Maybe you're far more compassionate than I am. But the thing that I struggle with is when there are people who I don't like, who do things that I don't like to the people that I really love, I kind of like the idea of them being held captive. I want them to stay there. In fact, I want them to rot there. I want more captivity, more restriction. What does Jesus say? I've come to proclaim freedom to all of you who are held captive. Now, please, please hear this. Notice the heart and the orientation of Jesus as he looks at a world that is actively opposed to him. He sees them as prisoners, and his heart goes towards them. How do you view prisoners who are against you? How do you think about those who want to bring you harm? How do you pray for those who are actively opposing the fame of God that you are so desperately trying to get or or give to? The captives that Jesus has in mind, he says, I want to go to them. I want to offensively move in their direction, get in their proximity, and then I want to proclaim to them that there is freedom that could be had. Recovery of sight to the blind. This certainly... I think would include the references to to the the blind that Jesus would indeed be healing here sometime soon. But I think really with the heart of what he's getting at is those who are blind to what the truth is. Now, are you starting to piece together what Jesus is saying here? Hey, the Holy Spirit is upon me. And I'm going to move in a Godward direction. I'm going to go in the way that God has called me to go, revealing the heart of God. And so I'm going to move towards those people who stand in opposition to the fame of God, who want to take down the name of God. I'm going to move towards them because they are held captive. They can't even fight it. They don't know what to do about it. They say words that oftentimes don't make sense. They spew insults at me, and I want to go after them. I want to pray for him. I want to go on the love offensive to those who hate me. Yeah, this is normal, natural, isn't it? To those who can't even see what's going on, I want to open their eyes to set at liberty those who are oppressed, the Yes, he is certainly is talking about the literal oppression of people in the world, but that's not the driving thing that he's referring to here. The driving thing he's referring to is those that are spiritually oppressed. Now, I want you to see the posture that Jesus is setting for us. 
The posture that Jesus is setting for us is he is, I think in many ways, getting rid of this dichotomy. It's us and it's them. And he's saying there's all of us. Because every single one of us at one point was held captive. We were spiritually oppressed. We were blind. Incapable of doing anything to take that step to bring glory and honor to God. And it took Jesus going on the offense to come towards us. And how did Jesus come towards us in your life? It probably is because somebody else took a step towards you. Could have been a mother, could have been a father, could have been a sibling, could have been a coach, could have been a teacher, could have been a coworker. But somebody took seriously enough the mission of God to say, I'm going to move towards you. And then the Holy Spirit did a work inside of you. The Holy Spirit came upon you. And guess what happened to your eyes? And you saw right from wrong, truth from error. You saw the beauty of the person of Jesus. And you saw that you were spiritually poor, incapable of adding to your bank account, getting it high enough credit to get you out of the debt. And you said, God, I've got no hope whatsoever. And somebody then told you, let me tell you what it is that Christ has done. And let me tell you what's required of you in the process. And you told them, it's going to be $100,000. And then you're going to have to say 71 prayers a day. And it, No, that's not what you said, is it? You said it requires throwing your hands up in the air, surrendering the controls of your life over and saying, God, I'm all yours. There's nothing I can do to fix myself. And when you throw yourself at the mercy of Jesus, you get to see what the heart is. You get to see the pursuit that he had. And when you surrender, hand yourself over to the person of Jesus, what do you get in return? His righteousness, his peace, his joy, his contentment, his perfection. And then when you blow it the very next day and you sin, what do you get? His forgiveness. The mission of God, Jesus reads that passage and it tells us that he sits down to teach and that every eye was fixed on him according to verse 20. Verse 21. At the end of his teaching, he says today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, I'm here. It's time. Let's go. Not it's coming. Not wait a little bit longer. I'm here. And in essence, he was asking all that those that were gathered, believe in me and then come and join me on this great mission. My mission to chase down those who are actively opposed to me so that we can win them over with our actions and with our words. We're going to proclaim, proclaim, proclaim. They were just blown away. Now, can I ask you a question? What are you blown away with? Because Jesus gets up and he speaks in a way that was so captivating. He's a tremendous storyteller. The guy had all kinds of wonderful things that he did. Again, 
literally giving sight to the blind, literally causing the mute to speak, literally opening deaf ears, all kinds of sickness, etc. Jesus did wonderful, marvelous things. But over and over and over again in the scriptures, Jesus would come in and the crowds would be amazed at his miracles, at his teaching, at his wisdom, etc. But where was the crowd when it came to the cross? Are you amazed at his teaching? Are you amazed at his wisdom? Are you amazed at his ability? Or have you been overwhelmed by his grace? You have been won over. Have you been floored by what it is that Jesus not only has done, but is doing in this moment and will do on your behalf? Are you so moved and stirred by him that it causes you to step back And sit back and say, man, I sure hope somebody says something about Jesus to someone somewhere. Or do you say, I have to let you know about the most significant person in my life. And I have to let you know he has done something in me that I am just different. And I have never gotten over how much it is that he has forgiven me of already, all that he is forgiving me of right now and all that he will forgive me of in the future. Are you overwhelmed? Are you amazed by what it is that Jesus has done so much so that you can step back and be a fan of him from a distance? Or have you been moved and stirred as a child of God that you have to do everything within your power to make sure you proclaim to the captives there can be freedom? I know. I know what it is like to be mocked. I know what it's like to be ridiculed. I have sat with important people and explained the gospel, and they have actually laughed. But the truth of the matter is, because I knew what it was like to be a captive all the way back in the summer of 1987, And over the course of the next two years, trying my hardest to get myself freed, I couldn't do it. And Jesus came in and did something. And I, to this moment, have never gotten over it. One of my greatest joys and privileges in life is to be able to proclaim to others what it is that Christ has done. And so as long as he gives me this voice, as many times as it goes out, whatever rasp comes in there, however silly it sounds, as long as he gives me breath. I just want to tell you about what Jesus has done. My prayer for us as a people is that we would seek actively the fame of God. And we do that by being deeply satisfied in him. And then when we are deeply satisfied in him, it causes us to live a life as if we are content to be with God. And that draws all kinds of attention. And people say, how in the world are you so at peace and content, et cetera? And then we get to proclaim, whoo, I'm glad you asked that question. Because it really isn't me. It's a work that God has done so deep inside of me. And anything good that you see, I assure you it's him. Anything bad you see, I assure you that's me. 
The fame of God and the freedom of man is the mission that God has called us to. I look forward to the next several weeks as we just continue to unpack this.